Good morning. Um, I'm glad that John prayed that at the beginning about the about from Timothy because that's kind of similar um, to what this whole little letter of two Peters about. It's that idea, like it says on there, passing on truth, passing on tradition. It's um, both letters written by somebody who knows they're about to die and want to make sure that the people that they know carry on um, without them, um, encouraging them and teaching them. So these are very similar letters in that they're looking at passing on the truth. Um, but today we're looking at the opposite side of that. Um, I realized when I was given the, the, what I was going to speak about in this little looking at 1 and 2 Peter, I realized I'd been given um, the most difficult part of the most difficult letter of the two. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, but that's okay. <laughs> People tend to do that to me. They just they give me difficult things to teach on. Um, so I've, I've kind of got used to it over the years, so it's okay. I enjoy it. Because um, this is a funny little letter. And so what I'm going to do, um, before we look at uh, what Peter's actually saying in this chapter, I'm just going to take a bigger picture like we did last week. Um, again, taking a big, big picture of the letter as a whole and how this second chapter fits into it. Um, because it is a difficult little letter. Um, probably one of the most difficult ones in the New Testament. It's certainly one of the most controversial, and there's a number of reasons for that. Um, one is simply what's in it. Um, there's some very, like, especially in chapter, in chapter 2, there's some very strange bits to this letter. And also the kind of the background, the history connected to the letter is a bit more awkward than many of the other New Testament letters. One reason is it's actually, in terms of the quality of its Greek, it's one of the worst books in the New Testament. Not as bad as Revelation, but nothing is as bad as Revelation when it comes to Greek in the ancient world. Um, but 2 Peter's one of the worst writings in Greek in the New Testament, which is odd because 1 Peter's one of the best. And so you have the, 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 you have the same author, it seems, on one hand writing a brilliant piece of Greek, and on the other hand writing an awful piece of Greek. Um, added to this is that nobody actually quoted this letter among the church fathers until the third century. So you have this gap. And this has led many people to actually have lots of questions about 2 Peter, who wrote it, when was it written, what's going on which actually meant it was one of the last letters to be added to the New Testament canon. There was a, whole, there was a little group of letters, about four or five of them, um, including Hebrews, because no one knew who wrote it. And there were people questioning, should this be in, should this not be in? And then it was decided it was. Um, another reason questions arise about it is because chapter 2. And because chapter 2, parts of it is almost exactly identical to Jude. Um, and the whole content, the whole structure is similar, but there are some bits that are actually almost like word for word the same, and which has got people puzzling, who copied who? Um, <laughs> did Jude copy Peter, or did Peter copy Jude? And what's the relationship between these two letters? Um, there's also, both of these letters, 2 Peter and Jude, have more references to very strange Jewish legends and myths than all the rest of the New Testament. 
Um, and there's this funny little bit at the end of Second Peter where um, a lot of people who teach Paul, Paul's letters quote from because Peter says Paul's letters are sometimes difficult to understand and anyone who struggled with Romans or Galatians will be fully appreciate that, that statement. But Peter actually refers to Paul's writings as scripture. And which seems very odd, considering if this is written in Peter and Paul's lifetime, that Paul's writings were already considered to be part of the Bible. So all of this means there's been lots of question marks about this little letter. And people in the early church debated about whether it should be in the canon or not. Did Peter really write it? And then, more recently, people are still debating it, what's going on with this letter. Um, So it's a very difficult, very strange little letter. But it's a wonderful little letter. Um, There are, I think the biggest difficulty is the quality of Greek between the two, which I think isn't that hard to explain, because when 1 Peter was written, Peter was free. And he had somebody to help him. His name was Silvanus, or Silas. And Silas actually helped him write 1 Peter. He's there. It says it in the text. Um, In 2 Peter, he's in prison. Um, There's not many scribes running around in prison to help him polish up his Greek, Um, which is actually the same with Revelation. When John's Gospel is written, he's out, he's free. When Revelation is written, he's in prison. And so it's not surprising that when you get a free Galilean fisherman with access to more clever friends with him, they write a good piece of writing. But when that same Galilean fisherman is stuck in a prison with no one to help them, they write very poor Greek writing. So it's probably not surprising. Um, But basically, there's been two ideas about this letter. Either this letter was written by Peter in prison in Rome, just as he about to die under Nero's persecution, if so, maybe in that room. Now, that traditionally is the prison where Peter um, was kept before he was, cruci- uh, before he was crucified upside down. As you can see from the little ups- upside down cross on the altar there. Um, or the other idea is actually, it is Peter's words and ideas, but it was written down later by somebody else and sent out a letter. Um, kind of similar to the Gospel of Mark, because... Mark is really Peter's gospel, but Mark wrote it for him, maybe because Peter had died and Mark wanted to write down Peter's stories before anyone forgot them. Um, But either way, this is Peter's ideas. These are Peter's words, Peter's response to either false teachers that are in the church or the potential he sees for false teachers to come into the church when he's not around to help. And the point is the same. Peter is either dead or he knows he's going to die. (laughs) And he's talking about what, how are people going to carry on after him? In the same way Paul is writing in 2 Timothy, how is Timothy going to carry on without Paul to help him? So it's about this passing on the truth. How, how, and the question there is, how do you know what is true? What is the right thing to be passed on? The audience is the same as 1 Peter, because in 2 Peter it says, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. And so people connect those two together. So you have these provinces in 
what is now Turkey, so Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is actually a map of Paul's journey, but you can see, actually you can't see really, can you? Because I'm here and I can't see it. Um, but the yellow one, the purple one, the green one, and the orange one. Okay, that's the area. So it's actually quite a large area, group of churches he's writing to. Um, this is really kind of his, him and Paul's old stomping ground. They've both been traveling around here. They know these churches very well. They've taught there. They've lived there with them. These are churches that are both facing persecution from outside, and they have this problem or potential problem of false teachers and heresies growing inside the church. Whereas 1 Peter is looking more on that outward persecution, 2 Peter is focusing on this inner problem of heresy within the church. It's mostly writing to Gentile Christians, but Gentile Christians that know a lot about Jewish stories, Jewish writings, and Jewish legends. Which is not surprising because Christianity at this point is still very Jewish. So even the Gentiles, they're reading the Old Testament, that's their Bible. All of their leaders and teachers are mostly Jewish. They have that Jewish stories and Jewish background, even even the Gentiles. The big idea behind this letter is what is going to be passed on? How do you know what is truth? And you have these two combating ideas. The ideas of the apostles and their lifestyle, which we looked at last week, and then this week, these false teachers. And the point is that he makes it's the source and the fruit of the truth you have to look for. So the source of the truth that's revealed in Christ and then passed on by the apostles and handed on to the church. And that's in contrast to the heresies in chapter 2. The source is Jewish legends, Jewish myths, that kind of thing. Um, The letter also focuses on the fruit. So the fruit of the apostles' teachings passed on is what we looked at last week. Godly lifestyle, holy lifestyle. But this week, the fruit of these heresies is an ungodly lifestyle. It's immoral lives and rebelling against authority. So it's the source of where the truth comes from and what it does is important. That's what he's looking at. And I think as I was thinking about this, I think this makes this letter extremely relevant today because we actually talk about this a lot. What is truth? Um, You know, alternative facts, post-truth, you hear it on the news all the time, people actually debating what is truth. And I think what 2 Peter helps us with is actually when we have these kind of discussions and thoughts, what Peter is encourages, well, if you want to know what truth is, find out where it came from and look what it's doing. What is its source and what is its fruit? It's a nice little structure to the letter. Chapter 1, what we looked at last week, Passing on the tradition from the apostles to the next generation and living godly lives. Chapter 2, standing against heresy, which is coming from these false teachers, and their fruit is ungodly lives. Chapter 3, waiting for judgment from God, 
And whilst you're waiting, live godly lives. See, live godly lives, they're living ungodly lives, don't follow them, live godly lives. Nice little package. The point is that the repeater's trying to say, choose chapter one and chapter three. (laughs) That's what he's trying to say. (laughs) So as I was thinking about it, we've actually already done the application for this sermon. Like we did it last week. And we'll do it again next week. Chapter 2, though, is focusing on the contrast, the negative aspect of this, this ungodly lives, these false teachers, and who are leading the church astray or have the potential to lead the church astray in the future. Um, and it's interesting that Peter doesn't actually look about what they are teaching. He doesn't talk about the false teachings. Instead, what he does, he looks at the character of the false teachers. So not what they're teaching, but how they are living. What do their lives teach rather than their words? And how are they encouraging other people to live? How, what are they leading to? And he also looks at the consequences. Where does this type of teaching lead? What happens to these type of teachers? Um, just to let you know, we have the source of what these heresies, these false teachings, is really because in between the Old and New Testament, um, there were no new books added to the Old Testament. There was no more of the canon being developed. But everybody was still busy. Everybody was still writing. The Jews were still coming up with ideas. They were still writing books in through this period. And during this time, you actually have a, quite a large development of Jewish thinking. And many books were written to either kind of fill in the details that the Old Testament didn't left out, or to interpret what the Old Testament was talking about. Um, and they became a part of Jewish thinking, a part of Jewish lifestyle, and a part of the religion too. One example of this is from Galatians 3.19, where actually Paul himself says that the law was given to Moses by angels. But if you go back to Exodus, the law was given to Moses by God. But these stories start to develop of actually what happened on the mountain, and because God is so holy, God and Moses couldn't talk together, so an angel must have taken the law from God and then gone and given it to Moses. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. That's actually Jewish interpretation that happened in between the Old and New Testament, which is so much part of Paul's thinking that he naturally writes it down. Um, but there are others as well. And now some of these were great, some of these not so great. Um, some of these, one of my favorite is actually, is, in the, is actually in the Apocrypha. It's the prayer of Manasseh. Is actually somebody imagining what King Manasseh prayed in prison in Babylon. And it's utterly beautiful. Um, but some of them were a bit weird and strange. But they were, they were a big part of Jewish culture during this time. And as because they were part of Jewish culture, they were then passed on to the Gentile believers too. Um, these stories were then passed on. This way of thinking about interpreting the Old Testament was then passed on to Gentile Christians too. 
But it's probably, it's these legends and stories outside of the Bible or surrounding the Bible that these false teachers were basing their ideas on. So rather where the apostles were basing their truth on the scriptures themselves, these false teachers were basing them on these Jewish legends, these Jewish myths and other writings. Now, two Peter and Jude are both facing this problem. And they, they handle it in very similar ways. Um, Jude, actually, what he does is actually uses these Jewish writings against the people who are using them to spread heresy. So he quotes from them to prove that they're wrong. So he uses their own ammunition against them, if you like. Um, they're teaching from books like the Book of Enoch, and he proves from the book of Enoch that they're wrong, um, which is kind of very clever of him, um, but has confused lots of people since. Um, so he quotes books like One Enoch, Assumption of Moses, um, all these type of things. Two Peter is similar, but he doesn't do as many direct quotes as Jude does. He just talks about it generally. But the main point of both is the same, that these teachers... Um, their lives prove that they are false, rather than not so much. Their teaching does, but their lives also proves that they're false. And God has always judged this type of sin throughout history. Therefore, he will judge it again, and he will judge them. So don't listen to them, don't follow them, because they will lead you away from Christ. And so both Jude and 2 Peter, that's what they're talking about. So he begins, actually the second chapter begins with but. So you know that he's already talking about something, a contrast to what he's just talked about. And what he's just talked about is the apostles' teaching. What they saw, the eyewitnesses of Jesus, and then they are then passing that on to the, to the, to the other, to other Christians. So, and the godly, godly lives that they're living. So this, what follows, is a contrast um, to truth revealed in Jesus and godly lives. So it's total opposite of that. And so he talks about these teachers um, that, are, that are among them or will come among them. He gives a little hint of what they're doing, but again, he doesn't actually say what they're teaching. He just says things like, they are exploiting you for gain. So they're trying to get money out, out of the church. They are bringing destructive heresies. They're leading you astray. They're blaspheming the truth. They're denying Christ. And their condemnation and their destruction is coming. God is going to judge them. And so what Peter then does is give a list of how, and two examples in this list, of how God has done this in the past of how people who are teaching or are living like these false teachers, how God has dealt with them. And the two main examples he talks about is the time of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, you have sinful angels and the wicked generation at Noah. Now, in, you might think that these are two separate examples, but in these Jewish myths, these are connected. Because in Jewish myths, these sinful angels are those 
um, sons of God, that weird part in Genesis chapter 6, of the sons of God who quite like the daughters of men, and then the Nephilim are born. And so that is the beginning of the flood story. It's like, it's what happens in that story is actually the final straw, which God then brings the flood. And so for, and in Jewish myths that built up around it, these sinful angels were identified as the sons of God, and there's all sorts of things about spirits in prison, I think, is in the first Peter, which are connected to this story. So this is all part of the same story for Jewish myths. Um, and also then Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, both of these examples are people who live immoral lifestyles and despise authority. And so this seems to be the two things that Peter is highlighting that these false teachers are doing. They are living immoral lifestyles and they're also leading people to live immoral lifestyles and they despise true authority. They rebel. But the interesting thing that Peter then goes on to say, he doesn't just focus on the judgment that is coming on these people. He also says in both of these stories, God actually recognized the righteous in the middle of all that and rescued them. Because the, you have Noah and his family and then Lot and his family. So God is destroying the unrighteous and judging them, but at the same time, he's rescuing the righteous from the situation. The flood comes, but Noah and his family is saved. Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, but Lot and his family are saved. So I think Peter is saying that God knows the difference. God will look down, see these false teachers at work among us, and he will know the difference. And when he judges them, don't worry, you will be rescued from that judgment. He knows the difference. He goes on then to say how actually proving that these false teachers are exactly the same as these sinful angels, the people of the time of Noah, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you have this very nasty list of all the things that these people get up to or lead people in. Um, they are bold and willful. They blaspheme the glorious ones. They're irrational animals. They're creatures of instinct. They blaspheme matters of which they are ignorant. They revel in the daytime, meaning that, you know, most people party at night. But these guys, they don't care, they're doing it in the daytime. That's the kind of idea there. Um, but they also revel in something else. They revel in their deception, their lies to people. Their eyes are full of adultery. They're insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. Their hearts are trained in greed, and they follow the way of Balaam. Balaam was, of course, in Numbers. He's the prophet that was paid to curse Israel. God took him over and blessed Israel, so he didn't get paid. Um, so he decided to trick Israel into sleeping with some Midianites so that God will desert them and judgment would come that way. And so he died. So he wasn't nice. <laughs> the donkey is probably the only good thing in that story. And the only righteous character <laughs> is the donkey which is why God saves him. Um, and the last part, I like what Peter is saying, that these teachers are promising freedom in their teaching. 
but they're not, they can't promise freedom because they're slaves. Slaves cannot offer anybody freedom because they are themselves enslaved. They are waterless springs. You know. A waterless spring is worse than no spring at all. Um, because you go, oh, look, there's a spring. I'm saved. There's no water. I'm not saved. They promise freedom, but they are slaves. They once escaped slavery through the knowledge of Christ, but they've gone back to slavery. And their second slavery is worse than their first. It's better for them if they'd never known righteousness in the first place. And you have this wonderful little proverb quoted. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So they've been cleaned. And what do they do after they've been cleaned? They go back and roll in the mud. That's what these people are doing. So, that's what's going on back there. Um, and I suppose we don't really have a, a reference. We, we, we are not plagued with problems of people going, coming along and teaching us Jewish myths and leading us astray. Um, but we, there are some similarities in our own lives and our own situations I think we can get from this letter, some application. And like I said, we've probably actually already done half of the application in what we looked at last week. Because the point of this letter is you do chapter 1 and you do chapter 3 and you don't do chapter 2. Um, so that's the biggest application. The biggest application of this is you don't live ungodly lives. You don't live like these people. You live godly lives and holy lives. You hold on to the truth that's been passed on, not these heresies, and live godly lives. Um, again, so the source of the truth that we have is Jesus. Passed on from the apostles all the way down the generations through the Bible and all the generations of the church from Jesus. That's the, we know the source. We know where our truth has come from, and we know the fruit of it. We see 2,000 years of the fruit of it, of these godly and holy lives. Chapter 2, if you like, is the counterfeit to that truth. And what Peter is urging these, and what he's urging us, I suppose, too, is to hold on to the truth and know it so well that the counterfeit is obvious. If you know the truth so well, you know lies when you see them. More on that in a minute. I think he's also, though, being very realistic. Because sometimes you can't tell false teaching by the teaching. Sometimes you can't see lies just by examining what is being said. False teachers don't have a sign on their head saying, I'm a false teacher. Um, so what Paul is urging is not just about the source, it's actually the fruit. What are their lives like? The teaching may seem sound, but what do their lives teach? When you hear somebody saying something, that might be great, but who are they? What are their own lives like? And actually, how are they encouraging other people to live? Where are they leading people? Are they leading them into holiness? There's also, and this struck me, I think, even more because I am a teacher, there's also a very challenging and awkward and difficult 
application to be faced when looking at this letter. Um, I think the last paragraph shows that all of these false teachers he's talking about did at one point know Jesus. They knew the way of righteousness. They had been described that they have escaped from slavery, that they returned to. So at one point, they must have been walking the right way. What happened? I don't think any of them woke up in the morning and said, I know I'm going to be a false teacher. People don't wake up in the morning and decide to be evil. I'm going to be evil now for the rest of my life. I've made a decision. (laughs) The world doesn't work like that. You don't decide overnight that you're suddenly going to go from being a good teacher to a false teacher. It's usually the number of steps and number of choices that are made that make people go down certain paths. And sometimes you don't know where choices are leading you. And they probably never intended, maybe, at the beginning, to be the people that Peter is talking about. But they must have led, made choices that led them away from the truth that they knew, that led them away from Jesus. And that's kind of scary. And I suppose the question that comes up is how do we stop ourselves, especially those who have that extra responsibility because we teach people, you know, no, no teacher likes James chapter 3, verse 1. Because that's the bit where it says that teachers will be judged more harshly than anyone else. And we don't like teaching James, you know, put that aside. It's t- too uncomfortable. <laughs> but there's this, there's this extra responsibility. How do we stop ourselves walking down that path? Well, I don't have any complete answers for you. Um, other than what Peter is talking about. And again, that's the main point, is holding on to the truth. Um, You know, you have two five-pound notes there, and you know what they say about, about knowing, seeing counterfeit money, the people who recognize counterfeit money straight away are the ones that deal with the real money every day. Um, So it's easier for people in the bank to notice counterfeit money because every day is spent staring at money. And we don't spend, we don't, I mean, obviously money is a big part of our lives, but we rarely spend time pulling out a five-pound note and staring and memorizing every detail, because that's not practical, it's not our job. But people who work with money, that's what they do. So when they see a counterfeit five-pound note, they know, because they know the real one so well. Um, So you have a real one at the top and a not-so-real one at the bottom, and, because, and you instantly know you know that the, that because the, the tower is missing in the one at the bottom. So if you know that that tower is there in the real one, if you don't see it in the false one, you know it's false. And I think that's the main point that Peter is trying to drive at. Know the truth. It's what Timothy was talking about. Paul and Timothy were talking about too. Knowing what has been given to you. Knowing the truth that has been passed to you. Like I said, it's been handed down to us. We've, again, John talked about the Bible that we have. The the long story of how God's word has been passed down to us generation after generation. 
and also the way that we study and teach about God's word, the doctrines, the theology, the tradition, the teachings, however you want to call it, that has gone alongside the Bible throughout church history. How we study, how we know the truth. That's the genuine, you know. That's the truth that has been passed down to us. When Peter's writing this letter, we're only talking about a... We're talking decades from the origin of the truth to being passed down now. Now we've got 2,000 years, but the same process has happened. And we've, you've probably seen it in your own life. Um, you, if you grew up in the church, your parents would have taught you the truth. And then you as parents are now teaching your children or grandparents the truth, or grandchildren um, the truth. It's that passing down. Knowing the genuine so well, so that when we see these lies, when we, see, when we wonder, is this true, is this not true, we know the answer because we know what, what is true. We know what is right. And I suppose the other uncomfortable thing to ask, when you wonder, am I walking down, am I doing the right thing here? <laughs> is this thing that I'm following, this truth that I'm accepting, is it right? The biggest and most probably most important and the most uncomfortable question is, how is my life? Because maybe it's the fruit of what you learn, the fruit of what you acknowledge as truth is going to be seen in our own lives. So I think it's not just about looking at false teachers and saying, oh, what's their lives like? Are they godly? Should I trust them? I think also we need to hold up a mirror too. Is what am I accepting? What am I taking on board as true in my own life? What is its fruit? What is it doing to me? How is it changing me? How is it making me think? Is it leading me to a more godly life or a less godly life? Um, I've always said, you know, God is someone that we'll never understand completely because he's God and we're not, therefore we're not qualified to ever fully understand him or comprehend him. Um, but, which is kind of sad in a way, but it's also very exciting because it means we'll never stop learning about him. Um, you'll, we'll never get perfection and perfect knowledge of God because he's beyond that, which means there's always something new to discover about him. Um, but I always say whenever I think about something that changes my opinion about maybe about God or the world that he's made, I have a simple question. Does it make God bigger? Does it make him more glorious or less? And I'm, I'm much more likely to accept what is being told me if it glorifies God, if it actually makes my God greater. If it diminishes him, I'm going to be very um, skeptical about it. And that's ideas, but I think it's also lifestyle as well. If I accept this truth on board, how does it change me? How does it change the way I think? How does it way change the way I live? Does it make me go more godly? Does it make me more like him or less like him? And I think that's the main point of what Peter is trying to tell us. Let's pray.
Yeah, Lord, as, as John said, I want to thank you for the work of all the people that have been involved in, down the centuries of passing on the truth to us. Um, in terms of the Bible, but also the church teachings and doctrine, theology, all those scholars and theologians that have worked tirelessly over, over 2,000 years to help us have the truth. And I pray that you'll help us day by day to know it more and more so that we will recognize the counterfeit when we see it. But also help us, Lord, to challenge us, as you've been challenging me as, I've been te- as I'm preparing for this, that we will be able to, and brave enough, to hold up mirrors to our own lives and see the fruit of what we know, the fruit of what we accept as true. Um, and challenge us to always look to your truth and look to our own lives and see if it measures up to what you want for us. And to have the then courage to go to you and say, I'm sorry. How can this be put right? How can my life be more like yours? And in your mercy and your grace, you will accept us and help us by showing us the truth and revealing more of you and more of your son. In your name, amen.